Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode number 20, Do You Begrudge My Generosity? And the following is a sermon that I preached on the text of Matthew 20, 1 through 16, the workers in the vineyard. Um, I preached this on September 24th of 2017 and have decided to insert it here because of its close connection to the themes of redefining good and evil for ourselves and redefining right and wrong as they relate primarily to ourselves. And one of the readings we chose in that particular service from the Old Testament was one from the book of Jonah. And so you'll notice that I will reference Jonah for our people. They know what I'm speaking about, but I've tried to make some connections between many of Jonah's difficulties in the book of Jonah, stemming ultimately from Adam and Eve's decision to lead humanity in the way of defining good and evil for ourselves, and then ultimately what Jesus is actually addressing with the workers of the vineyard um, parable. So there are many times when I've heard confusing interpretations of that parable, things about a person who turns to Jesus at the last hour of his life and don't be jealous for those people. And I really don't think that's what Jesus is doing in the story. And I hope that you will take encouragement, not just as a lesson in a way to interpret this, but also ultimately as a way for the Holy Spirit to work on your heart as he's been working on mine through that passage and understanding what Jesus is trying to get across to us through it. So I hope you enjoy it. And here we go. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and 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 to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. Father, we ask you for your guidance, for the 
powerful working of your Holy Spirit to penetrate deeply into our hearts so that we might hear the truth. Guide me as I share the thoughts that you have given me from this passage and lead us into your presence this morning. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, what a story. Where do we even begin? Well, this morning, I'd like to actually begin at the end, where Jesus poses a series of questions to a very disgruntled vineyard worker. In fact, it's these series of questions that shape the entire way we are to understand this parable. So if you have a Bible, and there are some at the seats at the end of your row, you might have brought one with you. Turn it to Matthew chapter 20. And the passage I just read is the first 16 verses from that chapter. In response to receiving the same pay for 11 times the work, one particular worker gets very upset with Jesus and loudly voices his disapproval. And then Jesus responds, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Now, to begin, if you've got your Bible and are wanting to follow along with me, notice in verse 4, The master says to those hired at the third hour, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. And then in verse 13, the first thing Jesus says to the disgruntled worker is, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Whatever is right, I will give you. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. So we know this parable here is in some way dealing with right and wrong, at least the perception of right and wrong. But it seems as though there are competing ideas of just what right and wrong actually are. The man complaining receives exactly what he agreed to receive, one denarius. And therefore, the master questions how he could view this as wrong. But his issue doesn't appear to be with what he receives. His issue is with what he receives in comparison with what someone else receives. And this comparison, he believes, is certain proof that a wrong has actually taken place. The word wrong in this translation actually means in the wrong to treat unjustly or to injure. This man is accusing the master of treating him unjustly, of injuring him through his generosity to others, even though how the master treats others actually has nothing whatsoever to do with anyone else. Do you remember at the end of John's gospel when Jesus has gathered around the disciples and he's talking to Peter about the kind of death he will face? And Peter turns and looks at John and says, well, what about him? And Jesus says to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, 
What is that to you? You follow me. Right and wrong. Good and evil. From somewhere deep inside all of us lurks a strong temptation to make ourselves the center of everything. And as a result, we've made good and evil, right and wrong, into categories only in relation to ourselves. So Jesus tells his parable so that we begin to understand that in the kingdom of heaven, right and wrong don't operate in relation to individual people. His standards are good and right and true whether or not we think they're good and right and true. This is God's kingdom, and his interest in fairness is quite different from ours. So let me just come right out and say it. Fairness is not what drives God in the way he distributes blessing. Some people are rich. Others are not. Some are called to lead. Others are called to follow. Some will get an education. Others won't. Some are blessed with tremendous gifts. Others, not so much. But what we do with the fact that we are all different, what do we do with the fact that we're all different, that we all receive different levels of blessing, that's the issue being addressed. What Jesus is talking about is that there's something severely damaged within the hearts and souls of fallen mankind that actually won't allow blessing to come to someone other than ourselves without getting offended that such blessing wasn't given to us. And what fuels this offense is that we often believe that what we receive from God is what we've earned. The disgruntled worker certainly thinks this way. We may find that we're not bold enough to come right out and say this, but the way we respond when we see others receive blessings speaks much louder than our words. The purpose of the parable is to show that God provides for our needs, our daily bread, one denarius. A denarius was a day's wages for a laborer. We looked at this last week with respect to forgiveness and a man owing someone a hundred denarii, which was a hundred days labor. So understand, all the workers need one denarius, and that's what they all receive. And the point is this. In the kingdom of heaven, God expects our obedience and partnership with him through our service for the kingdom, but in no way do we earn his blessings for that service. Rather, he gives his blessings so that we might use them for him. We will look at this in a few weeks when we deal with the parable of the talents. God does, in fact, distribute talents unevenly. The Bible does not confuse us in how it presents the facts. What we do with what we're given is where the difference lies. If the workers who bore the burden of the day and the scorching heat knew this about the master, they never would have gotten upset at him. But they did get upset. And so do we. So Jesus poses the question of all questions. The one that truly cuts to the heart of the matter. 
am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? And right here, you and I come face to face with the ugly truth buried deeply in our hearts. The answer that wants to shout out accusingly to, of all people, Jesus. No, you are not allowed to do what you want with what belongs to you. That's what we're oftentimes thinking. Jesus' question actually exposes where the real trouble is coming from here, and it's not coming from him being unjust. It's coming from our inability to allow him to distribute blessings as he sees fit. Ouch. Really? Are we really tempted to grumble against the master? Yes, we are. And Jesus knows this. In fact, his very next question actually implies the reason why we do this. He says, or do you begrudge my generosity? Now, that is how the ESV translates this verse. But the NIV, the New International Version, actually makes this much clearer. And it translates Jesus' words are of, are you envious because I am generous? Envy. One of the seven deadly sins so called because they were found to be particularly damaging to the soul. And envy comes dangerously close to topping the list. So just what is envy? Dorothy Sayers in her essay, The Other Six Deadly Sins, defines it this way. Envy hates to see other men happy. The names by which it offers itself to the world's applause are right and justice. And it makes a great parade of these austere virtues. It begins by asking plausibly, why should not I enjoy what others enjoy? And it ends by demanding, why should others enjoy what I may not? Envy is the great leveler. If it cannot level things up, it will level them down. And the words constantly in its mouth are my rights and my wrongs. At its best, envy is a climber and a snob. At its worst, it is a destroyer. Rather than have anybody happier than itself, it will see us all miserable together. We see envy alive and well every time a young child looks at the size of his sister's cookie in comparison with his own and upon seeing that hers is larger shouts out that's not fair what he really means is that's not fair because my portion is smaller I've yet to meet a child anywhere who upon seeing that he has the larger cookie ever mention anything about fairness. <laughs> and that's just what you'd expect. Remember, envy is about my rights and my wrongs. 
It views rightness and wrongness through the lens of self, and it cannot bear to think about right and wrong in any other way. Judging rightness and wrongness through the way you personally see things is why Jesus tells this parable in the first place. He needs to address that in God's kingdom, fairness isn't defined by our own personal viewpoint. Right and wrong are not categories that are determined based upon how we feel about them, and neither are good and evil. The real trouble with life apart from God, life outside the kingdom, is that our definitions of good and evil are completely tainted. We're not really interested in good and evil, right and wrong. What we're interested in is good for me and right for me. Anything less invites our critique, which is exactly what the man in the parable offers to Jesus. You see, envy is the natural reaction of someone who has not understood that right and wrong, good and evil are actual categories outside of themselves. We're still tempted to define right and wrong, good and evil, primarily in relation to how it affects us. And there's the problem. Do you see it? Do you see why it might be a problem for this one particular vineyard worker that his happiness and contentment is completely connected to what the master gives to other people? Do you realize how impossible such a connection would be to ever break away from? But right and wrong, good and evil are categories that are far too big to be measured and judged by my life. And every attempt at doing so leads me further and further into a joyless existence. The simple fact is that there will always be people we feel have gotten better than they deserve. And if we insist on basing our contentment in life on whether or not we think that's fair, we'll find ourselves trapped in endless cycles of cynicism, misery, complaining, and criticism. It's not much of a life to live, let me tell you. Now, the way to break this cycle is for us to recognize what's actually going on. The NIV's, are you envious because I am generous, gets at the heart of Jesus' question the best. That is, it gets at the heart of it the best in English. But unfortunately, the New Testament wasn't written in English, and this is one of the rare times, and I say rare because you can have with absolute confidence what God is saying in your English translations. But it is sometimes helpful to get a little more clarity if you understand Greek. And in the original language, this point is made unbelievably clear. What Jesus literally says to the disgruntled worker is this, is your eye evil because I am good? Why is this vineyard worker so upset? Why are we so tempted to resent others when we think they've received greater blessings than we have? Why does this parable feel so wrong to us? It feels that way, right? It feels the same way as last week's parable. There's something wrong about being forgiven a huge debt and not being willing to extend. There's something wrong. It just feels wrong. Jesus' answer is that our definitions of good and evil are completely backwards. We are looking at this entire scene in the wrong way. We're looking at it with an evil eye. 
the way we are looking at this has actually allowed us to conclude that something evil has gone on here, that some injustice has been committed against us, that the master has injured us somehow. And then we find ourselves accusing him of injustice, accusing him of doing wrong simply because what he does does not line up with our own views of right and wrong. Friend, Jesus says, and you just have to love the way he addresses this guy. If I were the master, I would have no friend in my vocabulary for this man. But Jesus is not like me, thank God, quite literally. But he turns to the man without anger, without condemnation, and simply poses a question for him to see the truth himself. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? I'm pretty sure I remember that conversation we had a little while ago. Is this really evil? Or is this just evil to you? Our Old Testament reading from this morning from Jonah may shed some light here. You may not have known this, but the word evil shows up in the book of Jonah exactly seven times. It is not coincidental, except in our English translations, we do not always see the word translated as evil. So let me take you through all seven. This will not take me very long. In chapter 1, verse 2, God tells Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Jonah, of course, as we know, flees to Tarshish and he gets on board a ship and there's a great storm. And so in verse 7, the sailors say to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So now we've got sinful people's response is evil and we have a a bad storm that is threatening the lives of sailors and Jonah that's also called evil. The very next verse, they turn to Jonah and say, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. All right, so now Jonah's involved. He's part of the process. We know what takes place. Jonah tells him to throw him overboard. He gets swallowed by a whale. He goes and he prays. He repents. He comes back, spit on land, and God sends him to Nineveh. And God offers tremendous mercy and grace to the people because in verse 10, we're told, I'm sorry, in verse 8, the the king is making an edict and he tells his own people, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And then in verse 10 of chapter 3, we read, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. Okay, so far, so good. The first five references, our English translations mirror the Hebrew. They use the word evil. Now let's come to chapter four. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Now, displeased Jonah exceedingly is a really good way to translate this, but do you know what it actually says in Hebrew? It was exceedingly evil to Jonah. And then again in verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Literally, to save him from his evil. Oh, you see, it was considered evil to Jonah that God's wrath had not been poured out 
on the Ninevites. And then, while anxiously awaiting and hoping for their destruction, the sun makes Jonah a little hotter than he wishes to be. And to him, that is an evil thing. His categories are entirely wrong. They're entirely reversed. Evil to Jonah had simply become that which is unpleasant to me. But it is an unsustainable outlook. And it is one that will literally eat us alive. One of the richest joys ever to be experienced is seeing God's blessings poured out on people. But when we have an evil eye, we never see it. In fact, we're completely blind to it. Our concern becomes for our own glory, our own recognition, our own blessings, and we manage to see God lavishing blessings on others as somehow evidence that he's treating us unjustly. Where does that come from? Why is it that when God offers one of my children an opportunity to do something fun, the other two feel that it's a personal insult to them? I don't know. Why is it that when God blesses someone else with something valuable and they share it with me, my initial reaction is, hmm, must be nice. Where in the world does that come from? You're laughing because you know what I'm saying is true. And I'm glad you're laughing because it really would make me uncomfortable if I was the only one that ever thought that. Isaiah rightly prophesied about the people in his day a message that could equally apply to Jonah and could equally apply to us. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Do you know why people call evil good? and good evil because we claimed the right to determine good and evil for ourselves when our first parents ate from the forbidden tree do you remember what tree they ate from they were told not to it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil only God is discerning enough to distribute justice in a way that is impartial. Only God is capable of rightly determining good and evil. And as you and I saw last week with forgiveness, we were not made to carry the weight of another's offense against us. And it's the same thing here. We were not made to determine for ourselves what is good and what is evil. Life in the kingdom involves a total reorientation of our way of looking at the world, a giving up of our right to determine for ourselves right and wrong. We need the way we look at right and wrong, good and evil, to be radically, radically altered. We need the way we look at God's blessings toward others to cause us to rejoice, not to complain. And as the parable points out, we need the way we think about being first and last to be transformed as well. So is it any wonder that the very next story Matthew tells in his gospel is James and John wanting to be first 
in the kingdom and sitting at Jesus' right hand. I'm not sure they quite get it at this point. I'm not sure they even understand Jesus' parable at all. Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us when we are so slow to understand. Have mercy on us when we're, we're, we're willing to question his goodness because of what he distributes to someone else or to make someone else's blessings an issue with us. Have mercy on us indeed, which we find Matthew immediately recording coming from the lips of two blind men crying out to Jesus as he passes by. And Jesus says to them, as we desperately need him to say to us, what do you want me to do for you? And our answer needs to be theirs. Lord, let our eyes be opened. The two blind men want to see as Jesus sees. I want to see as Jesus sees as well. They want to look at the world the way he does. I want to look at the world that way too. They need their sight healed. And so do we. And so verse 34 says that, And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight, and they followed him. So what does this look like practically? How do we move beyond this natural tendency toward envy, and I might add, the enslavement that comes with it. Well, because envy cannot bear to admire or respect, and because it cannot bear to be grateful, admiration, respect, and gratitude will go a long way toward living in victory over it. So start right there. When you see someone receiving blessing and you are tempted to make it all about you and to complain about it, pray for that person blessings of your own instead. Thank God for the gifts he's given them, the great circumstances that are coming their way, or the simple fact that their life situation is what it is. Pray blessing over them. Praise Jesus for the gifts he's given to them and thank him for how kind he is being in that person's life. Begin to pray for someone else's promotion, someone else's healing, or that their life circumstances would improve, particularly in areas where you struggle. Nothing fights against envy more than admiration and gratitude. So ask Jesus to keep your heart there, focused on him and his gifts, and to remember that this is his kingdom and the blessings given in his kingdom are for him. And ask him for the strength and the sight to embrace his kingdom's values and to willingly confess, yes, you have every right to do what you choose with what belongs to you. Amen.